Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest on the podcast today is Carl Grossman, who uh, has gone by several monikers in his career, including captain, and then more recently professor, I guess, as you've obtained that, that level of competence. And you're also a columnist and a historian and a, an investigator, quite a, I guess, a uh, dramatic life in many areas. And you have a new book out called Cold War Long Island, which concerns the period between 1945 and I guess 1991, when we were locked hand, locked head to head with the Soviet Union, which ultimately collapsed. During that time, particularly in relation to the East End, Carl, uh, but also tell us about the book and um, how it came about that you would want to do that and um, a little bit about, about the book. Well, I, I co-authored the book with Christopher Verga, who is a professor, also a professor at Suffolk Community College. He teaches Long Island history. Actually, I had heard him speak at the Suffolk County Historical Society about slavery on Long Island. And I, I was just flabbergasted by the uh, extent of slavery that he outlined. And I did a, a column on, uh, on Chris and he, he did, did an earlier book called Civil Rights on Long Island. In any case, we got to know each other pretty well. And he suggested we put this book together on the, uh, the Cold War period on Long Island. I think he kind of wanted me to partner with him because some of this stuff I covered as a reporter. I mean, very interestingly, and this I've written extensively about, all over Long Island, nuclear-tipped missile bases was set up uh, on the East End in West Hampton, also yeah. Rocky Point. And the idea here was uh, if a, uh, oh, a, a fleet of Soviet bombers were overhead, uh, we would, uh, I don't know if we would, but uh, the Army and the Air Force, the Army had these Nike Hercules bases and the Air Force had these Beaumark, this Beaumark base in West Hampton. Uh, what they would do would be to uh, send up these nuclear-tipped missiles and, and the tips on the missiles. I mean, oh, uh, for example, on the on the Nike Hercules, they ran from 10 to 20 to 30 kilotons. The Hiroshima bomb was 13 kilotons. And these were short-range missiles. And in effect, they would um, explode amidst a... Uh, uh, a grouping of uh, of Soviet bombers. Uh, the fear was the bombers would be on their way to New York City, and this would stop them. On the other hand, it would also rain radioactivity down uh, on and near Long Island. I mean, this was one of the kinds of things that happened uh, 
among many others during the Cold War era, which most people are not, I mean, you can go actually to West Hampton. The West there? Uh, you, I was told there, I haven't, haven't been there, but I'm told there are like silos that go down into the ground. Well, at Rocky Point, there's silos. In fact, I did a TV program for WVVH-TV. Folks can watch it on, uh, on YouTube. Uh, the title was uh, Avoiding Nuclear Destruction by the Skin of Our Teeth. And I stood actually on a, a missile silo, no missile inside, thankfully, a missile silo in Rocky Point doing my stand-up, opening the TV program. Are they still there, the silos? Yeah, the silos are still there. In fact, there's a big effort to make that particular site a historical site because a, a lot of the buildings and the, and the silos from when these nuclear-tipped missiles were based there, ready to shoot down formations of uh, Soviet bombers, uh, they're there basically intact. In West Hampton, there's 56 buildings steel buildings and the the roofs of these buildings would open up and the Bomark missile would rise and be uh, launched to be shot off towards these formations of uh, Soviet. And so they, why they were doing this, uh, trying to detonate in a nuclear device amidst the formation of Soviet bombers, at that point, the technology didn't exist to have a, a ground-to-air missile hit a, a plane, hit a bomber directly. So they figured they would just ignite, uh, detonate, oh, sky. And, and, and the formation would uh, uh, be blown apart and so forth. What else is on eastern Long Island besides the uh, silos that's left over from the war? Well, it was silos, and, and just to add, in West Hampton, what it is are these buildings, 56 of them, and they're still there, and they house a lot of county, Suffolk County government. <laughs> so again, another uh, remnant of um, uh, of the Cold War. Out on very much northeastern Long Island, a mile and a half off um, Orient Point, is the Plum Island Animal Disease Center. And I began investigating a long time ago, 1971, was my first story in the Daily Long Island Press about biological warfare research being done uh, on Plum Island. Uh, Newsday, uh, my competitors at Newsday, uh, led by John McDonald, the top investigative reporter for Newsday, he later was able to, through the Freedom of Information Act, get documents, uh, government documents stating that the mission of Plum Island, when it was set up uh, uh, for this uh, uh, actually bio-warfare use, was to poison the cattle and the other livestock in the, in the, then, the then the Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, again, that was the purpose. After a couple of years, however, and this was... Uh, uh, learned by Mike Carroll, who wrote a book on the Plum Island government facility called Lab 257. After a couple of years, the Pentagon decided that it doesn't make that much sense to poison the, the food stock, the livestock, the cattle and so forth, the Soviet Union, because we're going to have to end up feeding millions of Russians 
<laughs> better, so better we just nuke them. Uh, better we just nuke them. Meanwhile, there's a big question as to whether biological warfare activity actually ended on uh, on Plum Island. Indeed, Newsday, go back to Newsday, uh, did a piece uh, also in the 1970s talking about the emergence of African swine fever in Cuba and how African swine fever didn't exist in the Western Hemisphere other than for experiments on Plum Island. And Newsday connected the dots and linked Plum Island to a... Uh, a CIA operation coming out of the canal zone in which African swine fever was taken uh, taken to Cuba. Uh, again, another remnant of the, um, of the Cold War. Give us, a, give us a brief tour of the different things you can see if you were in your car driving around. I guess start with uh, the Air Force Base at Montauk. Well, the Air Force Base in Montauk, I mean, that, that's a mystery. No one has really, uh, uh, you know, there's been all kind of oh, claims about what that was all about. But certainly what you can see all through the eastern end of Long Island are uh, places on Montauk, uh, fortifications for guns. I mean, this goes actually way back before the Cold War because we were very concerned the U.S. was during the Spanish-American War that a Spanish fleet would be moving west down the Long Island Sound or out of the ocean towards New York City. So what the U.S. did was um, create these, um, uh, these fortifications, like, for example, the eastern portion of Plum Island. And I've been there. It's like Corregidor. There's, um, oh. uh, <laughs> there's places with there were gun emplacements uh, across the way, across the Sound. A Fisher's Island gun emplacements, Montauk gun emplacements. Uh, again, this goes back to the Spanish-American War. Uh, we would be able to stop the Spanish fleet, we felt, with artillery uh, from shore batteries. But in the Cold War period, the concern wasn't ships coming to attack New York. It was Soviet bombers coming to attack New York. Well, they had at Montauk, and it's the largest structure, I think, on Eastern Long Island, is the radar tower, which was built uh, for exactly the purpose you're describing. Oh, yeah, yeah. We can still see that tower. Certainly, you can drive around and see that tower. Another uh, really comes out of, uh, in many respects, the Cold War environment was uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory. Uh, the whole nuclear age, quote unquote, the nuclear age begins, interestingly enough, with a letter from Long Island. Right. Uh, Einstein. Einstein signed it. Actually, Leo Szilard, another physicist and a refugee from the Nazis, uh, really framed the letter. And uh, what the uh, what the letters fission had been done, the splitting of the atom had been done in Germany in '38. And what the, uh, what the letter uh, uh, really proposes is that to fight fire with fire, the U.S. should start a crash program to, uh, uh, well, to work with nuclear technology because the, the, the Nazis might be doing that. And we did. We had the Manhattan Project. And at the end of the Manhattan Project, there was a lot of concern. And we, uh, we write about it, Chris and I, in the book. In Tennessee, though. Oak Ridge. Yeah, well, there, there were these secret laboratories, Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge. 
Los Alamos was the big one. Clinton Laboratory was actually the original name for Any, anything out here on the end? Brookhaven. Well, Brookhaven was set up afterwards, and that was really a result of the folks involved in the Manhattan Project, which became the Atomic Energy Commission. This happens in the end of 1946, the AEC. But there was concern at these um, uh, these national nuclear laboratories involved in developing atomic weapons. Uh, what are we going to do next? I mean, you can't sell an atomic bomb even to the French or to the Germans, to the Germans, to the English. I don't want to want to sell them. To, what are we going to do next with nuclear technology? And then they had all kinds of schemes up their their sleeves. We could uh, uh, we could uh, maybe have uh, nuclear propelled uh, cars, and maybe we could use nuclear for zapping food. Uh, to start to uh, uh, irradiate food so you can, if you wanted to save a strawberry for 10 years. And then came the notion of um, uh, nuclear power to generate electricity. In any case, after the war, 1947, the Atomic Energy Commission created this Brookhaven National Laboratory on a former U.S. Army base, Camp Upton, in Yapank. And its mission was to do atomic research and then also to, uh, to develop civilian uses of nuclear technology. One of the Cold War activities of Brookhaven Lab also turned out to be monitoring the health of the people of the Marshall Islands. After the United States exploded over 60 atomic and hydrogen bombs just off uh, the, um, the Marshall Islands, causing great illness, terrible illnesses. The radioactivity was enormous uh, on the Marshall Islands, and the personnel from Brookhaven Lab, including the lab's doctors, was sent way out to the Pacific to um, to deal with the uh, the folks on on the Marshall Islands to report about the consequences of these experiments and so forth. Uh, and um, uh, what they found was 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 just outrageous, and also outrageous. According, and this is a fellow who was a professor of anthropology uh, in the city, uh, Glenn Alcalay, who was a, formerly a Peace Corps volunteer on the Marshall Islands. And he, he got deeply into this issue, uh, including ultimately a billion-dollar settlement the folks on the Marshall Islands uh, got because of, well, as they saw it, and as Glenn writes in a number of reports, which we quote in the uh, book, uh, these Brookhaven lab folks, these doctors even, kind of considered the Marshall Islandese uh, guinea pigs for the uh, for these tests. I mean, it was really a crime a, a crime against uh, a crime against the humanity of those poor people on the Marshall Islands. Again, another uh, a, a cold Cold War activity, uh, and then as a side development in terms of Brookhaven Lab, in connection to its mission to develop civilian uses of nuclear technology, it began pushing, and we also here in Long Island could have ended up as guinea pigs, they began pushing for Long Island to become a, quote, nuclear park, as the Atomic Energy Commission described places in the United States where a lot of nuclear power plants would go. And uh, Brookhaven Lab and 
the Long Island Lighting Company joined hands and essentially as partners pushed to have seven to 11 nuclear power plants built on Long Island. The first that was constructed was the Shoreham nuclear power plant. It was stopped by uh, a groundswell of public opposition. But from the get-go, for example, uh, from the beginning, when George Vineyard was the director of Brookhaven National Laboratory and this partnership between Wilco and Brookhaven Lab began, his wife just so happened, Phyllis Vineyard, to be on the board of the Long Island Lighting Company. In later decades, uh, William Catacasinos, Bill Catacasinos, who formerly was the assistant director of Brookhaven National Laboratory, became the chief executive officer and chairman of the Long Island Lighting Company. Uh, so this was a um, an outgrowth of, of, of Brookhaven National Laboratory, which fortunately uh, was stopped. Imagine Long Island having seven to 11 nuclear power plants and having accidents. I mean, how could we evacuate Long Island? And incidentally, the kind of nuclear power plant that was built at Shoreham, and there was to be two more at Shoreham. Right. Shoreham one was a General Electric Mark I nuclear power plant. Guess what? kind of nuclear power plant blew up at Fukushima, a General Electric Mark I nuclear power plant. And there were six GE Mark I nuclear power plants at uh, yeah. Fukushima. And we too were to have a cluster of nuclear power plants. And just in terms, again, of, of aftermath of, of, of all these things, back to Plum Island, one of the things that occurred on Plum Island was that, well, According to Lab 257, which was written by Michael Carroll, an attorney, notion of this Plum Island Lab uh, to also destroy the livestock in the Soviet Union, the godfather of the Plum Island Lab was a former Nazi scientist named Eric Traub. And during World War II, he ran a laboratory on the island of Reims in the Baltic. Its mission to go after the livestock of the of the Soviet Union. Oh, exactly. After the war, he and over a thousand Nazi scientists, including Werner von Braun, who also figures into, into our book, were brought over to the United States on what was called Project Paperclip. And Traub, who actually had connections uh, in the 1930s, he, he, he lived here in the United States. In fact, he was very active in Bund activities in camps at Camp Siegfried. In the 1930s, the Nazis set up this field for marches and all in Yapang, Camp Siegfried, oh. with streets named Hitler Street and Goebbels Street and so forth. And this guy, Eric Traub, uh, would attend these, uh, these Bund rallies, these Nazi rallies, and also uh, studied at Rockefeller University. And also Bayshore, I believe. Had a mark. Well, the, 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 the Nazis were active all over Long Island, but in at Camp Siegfried, it was it, the Long Island Railroad used to run a special train to take the Nazis from the New York area out to Long Island to to, to march around in Nazi uniforms and so forth. And then guy Eric Traub was involved. After the war, he's he's brought to the United States, uh, like Werner von Braun was, and these other not Werner von Braun of 
V1 and V2 rocket fame. And he helped, uh, this, this goes, he ends up at the Redstone Army Arsenal in Alabama, developing the Redstone rocket based on his V2 rocket, his Nazi V2 rocket. It was the first rocket capable of carrying a nuclear weapon that the U.S. had in its, its arsenal. Meanwhile, Eric Traub goes to uh, Fort Detrick. It's in Maryland, which uh, for many years was the, uh, uh, the headquarters for U.S. biological warfare work. And he convinces the folks at uh, Fort Detrick to set up a laboratory on a little island, kind of like what he had during the war, to do what he had done during the war, figure out ways to uh, uh, to kill off the, the Soviet livestock. Now, one of the, um, and, and we spent several pages on this in the book, one of the, the vectors that was played around with on Plum Island turns out to be ticks, ticks. And a number of books, Lab 257, uh, The Belarus Secret, uh, a most recent book called Bitten, uh, claimed that this work on Plum Island with ticks ended up with the emergence of Lyme disease because uh, Plum Island just 10 miles from Old Lyme, Connecticut, uh, where Lyme disease was first identified. Now, this isn't in the book because the book just came out a couple of weeks ago, uh, but uh, and we, we wrote it you know, through, uh, through over several months, but just also a couple of weeks ago, a congressman from um, New Jersey uh, put a bill into, into Congress, Representative Chris Smith, a Republican in his 21st term in Congress from New Jersey. Uh, and the, the, the bill is, uh, well, I'm just reading here from the congressional record, September 22nd, last month. Americans deserve the truth. Did the Department of Defense weaponize ticks with Lyme disease? That's the headline of the congressional record account. And uh, in the account, uh, Mr. Speaker says, Mr. Smith, in the spirit of transparency and accountability, my amendment directs the General Accountability Office, GAO, to probe whether the Department of Defense ever weaponized ticks with Lyme disease. And he goes on in his remarks as he introduced this amendment, speaking about Plum Island, uh, speaking about uh, Fort Detrick, and he says, if the investigation concludes our government's bioweapons programs did not contribute to the proliferation of Lyme, we turn the page. And if it did, hopefully this investigation and research will contribute to a cure. I mean, we know what's happened with Lyme disease. It's become epidemic all through the United States. It's, it's, it's in fact, all over the world. Question is whether it uh, originates from experiments on Plum Island. I've been told that uh, Carl Fisher brought sheep over to Montauk to create his English resort in 1926, who had picks, and that's how they got here. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I had, had hoped. In any case, I wanted to thank you for this lesson on, uh, which I was one of those protesters at Shoreham that ultimately caused the closing of that nuclear plant after it ran for just one day. And then I think I, I, this is something you, I'm sure you know. Governor Cuomo, the first one, authorized the destruction and complete 
bulldozing of Shoreham. But when he found out that it was going to cost $6 billion to do, he changed his mind and said, let it sit. And it's still there today, although it's far from operational. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a Hulk sitting there on the beach. Yep. Uh, you know, in, in Shoreham, uh, the expense, uh, uh, you know, of, of bulldozing it down would have been high. So uh, it's there, uh, a monument to, uh, to nuclear folly. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. And this has been a very interesting lesson to me about some of these things that... Uh, we knew nothing about it at the time. And um, this is Carl Grossman I'm talking to, and his book is Cold War Long Island, and it's available now in bookstores, having come out a couple of weeks ago. And thanks for being on the podcast. A pleasure, Dan. Bye.